0: As you can see, we're going to have the Lord's Supper in our service this morning. Now this is something very important to our fellowship and something we haven't done as often as we usually would have over the last couple of years, mainly due to health and safety concerns associated with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, We just got back to having the Lord's Supper regularly in our services and then the Omicron wave hit and so we actually haven't had the supper this year and I've missed it and I'm sure many of you have too. Thankfully the situation has improved, we seem to be on the other side of that wave and so the leadership believes it's appropriate for us to resume this precious part of our life together. With the Lord's Supper in view, I'd ask you please to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. The sermon today is intended to get us thinking about what the Lord's Table represents. We're going to concentrate on just a couple of verses, but I'd like to begin by reading the whole chapter. So please, if you would follow along as I read aloud. And we also have brought along the Pew Bibles. So if you do need a Bible, there's one up the back there for you. Isaiah chapter 50, beginning reading at verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? of which my creditors is it to whom I have sold you. Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stinketh, because there is no water, and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God hath given to me the tongue of of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled, This shall ye have of mine hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for our service of worship thus far. Thank you that we've been able to sing these wonderful songs that point us to Christ, and remind us of our great salvation in Him. I pray that you would remind us of that now as we come to your word. We would ask that you give us a fresh view of your Son, our Saviour, whom we love. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. When you teach the Bible regularly in this kind of setting, you often have to make decisions about how much you're going to assume your audience knows. Uh, In fact, all teachers do this. Uh, In each lesson, they have to figure out where to start. And sometimes, even though a teacher is fairly confident that her students know quite a bit about the subject at hand, she will still go back to basics, uh, back to the fundamentals and start there. And that's sort of how I'm going to start this sermon today. I'm confident that many of you are familiar with the book of Isaiah and there are some passages that you know really well. You understand what this text is about. And this chapter might be one of those chapters that you are very familiar with. You might be familiar with the section that runs from verses 4 to 7. But even so, I'm going to begin this message by sort of going back to basics, or to put it another way, instead of assuming that we all know what this passage is about, I'm going to do the work to show you what it's about. I'm going to begin with a question. You can see it there in the outline, and I think you'll see where I'm going. The question is this, who is speaking in verses 4 to 7? Notice that the Lord is speaking in verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Verse 2, wherefore when I came was there no man, when I called was there none to answer, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Verse 3, I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. But then the voice shifts to someone else for the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 4, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Verse 5, the Lord God hath opened mine ear. Verse 7, for the Lord God will help me. So who is this? Well, I don't think it would be incorrect in this case to say that this is the prophet. This is Isaiah giving his testimony. Indeed, this is close to how Calvin interprets the passage. He says, for my own part, I have no doubt that Isaiah comes forward as one who represents all the servants of God, not only those who were from the beginning, but those who should come afterwards. Now, I think this is true. But I also think we have good reason to believe that there is more going on here. Now this is Isaiah's voice, perhaps speaking for all the prophets, but this is also someone else's voice. Just like what we have in Psalm 22. David is speaking about his experience, but we know that someone else is speaking about their experience. And we know this from how the New New Testament authors interpret Psalm 22. The person speaking in verses 4 to 7 is the servant mentioned in verse 10. And I'll read from verse 9. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord? And obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. But there is the Lord and there is his servant. Those that fear the Lord obey the voice of his servant. In verses 4 to 7, we have the testimony of the servant, the one who speaks for the Lord. We're given insight into his relationship with the Lord. We're given insight into his experience, and that leads us naturally to a second question Who is the servant? Now, I realize that some of you, perhaps most of you, know the answer to this question, and you could probably explain it to me. But as I said a moment ago, I think there is value in doing the work, there is value in showing how we come to this understanding. Who is the servant of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 50? Well, let's go back to chapter 42 and read some verses there. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. Behold, my servant, well there he is in verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. The bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. we're told so many things in this passage. Uh, We don't have time this morning to consider each characteristic, but let me just mention a handful. Uh, This servant is pretty special. (laughs) The Lord has chosen him and delights in him. He has been anointed with the Spirit. He will have a ministry not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles. He will bring forth judgment to the Gentiles and be a light to them. He will be gentle and compassionate. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. And at the same time, he will speak the truth and establish judgment in the earth. He will be the basis of a covenant that God enters into. He will open blind eyes and set people free. We meet this person again over in chapter 49. If you'd like to turn over there now, Isaiah chapter 49, reading from verse 1. And this time the servant is speaking. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel. In whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have laboured in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now again, and now saith the Lord, that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nations abhorreth, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see thee and arise. Princes also shall worship Because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Now, again, there's far too much in this passage for us to consider in our sermon today, just a few points. In verse 3, the Lord refers to the servant as Israel, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel. It sounds like the nation might be the servant, and not an individual. But then if you look further down, you see that the servant has been sent to minister to the nation, to to bring Israel back to the Lord. Verse 5, And now saith the Lord that formed thee from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. So the servant has to be an individual or else the text makes no sense. The servant is called Israel in verse 3 because he personifies the nation of Israel. He personifies what the nation of Israel is to the Lord. The Lord chose Israel. The Lord delighted in Israel. He revealed himself to Israel. He brought his purposes for this world to pass through Israel. And so it is for the servant. Notice also, very interesting, that the Lord called the servant and mentioned his name before he was born. That's in verse 1. The servant will not only have a ministry to Israel, but be a light to the Gentiles, verse 6. In fact, he will be the Lord's salvation unto the end of the earth, also in verse 6. And then notice in verse 7 that though he will be despised by men and abhorred by the nation, kings and princes will worship him. I think we're starting to figure out who this is, right? Right? There is one more passage in Isaiah that we need to consider, and this is the one that reveals the identity of the servant most clearly. We won't read all of it, but please turn over to chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Some of the most familiar words in the Old Testament and indeed in all of the Bible. Isaiah 52, verse 13 Behold, my servant, there he is. My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told, them they shall see, and that which they had not heard, they shall consider, chapter 53, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. We see here that the servant will die. And that he will die on behalf of others. His soul, his life will be made an offering for sin. His suffering will satisfy the Lord. In knowing the servant, many shall be justified. Because he will have borne their iniquities. The authors of the New Testament quote from this portion of the Old Testament on seven occasions. And there is no doubt who they understood the servant to be. If you want to look this up for yourself, read the account of the interaction between Philip and the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah chapter 53. He can't figure out who the prophet is talking about, and Philip, we're told, began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. The servant of the Lord in these passages in Isaiah is the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. He really can't be anyone else. The text we're concentrating on this morning, Isaiah chapter 50 verses 4 to 7, is the third of what are called the servant songs, and there are four of them. Some scholars believe this third song in chapter 50 goes all the way from verse 4 to the end of the chapter, but most see it as running from verse 4 to verse 7. In these verses, through the pen of the prophet, the Messiah is speaking. Jesus is speaking. He is talking about his experience. We are given a wonderful insight into the mind and into the heart of our Lord. I'd love to consider all four verses, but in the interest of time, we're going to reflect on just the middle two verses in our message today, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 begins with these words, The Lord God hath opened mine ear. This refers to a willingness to listen, a willingness to receive wisdom and instruction. Uh, This is the opposite of the person who sticks their fingers in their ear. (laughs) They don't want to hear. They don't want to listen. They don't want to know whatever it is you've got to say. Perhaps your children, when they were little, used to do that, stick their fingers in their ear. Well, that wasn't the servant. The servant. It's interesting that the servant says that the Lord opened his ear. Now this is not to say that the servant was unwilling to listen and the Lord sort of forced his ear open, but it does acknowledge the initiative of the Lord, the work of the Lord in the servant's heart. Jesus came to a point in his life when he recognised who he was and he listened to his Father, he listened to God. I think of the child Jesus in the temple for those three days. It's clear that at the time he knew who he was, he knew where he was, and he had some understanding of his purpose. How is it that ye sought me, he said to his mother? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? The text doesn't tell us, but I think that while he was in the temple, yes, he was having wonderful conversation with the religious leaders, but he was also communing with his father. I think of God talking to the child Samuel in the tabernacle. Was not that perhaps a foreshadowing of the child Jesus in the temple? In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, "'My meat is to do the will of him that sent me,' and to finish his work. He said a similar thing in John chapter 6, verse 38, "'For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me.'" We might not fully comprehend how exactly Jesus came to know his Father's will. Uh, It's here that we hit up against the mystery of his person, the the seamless union of those two natures, uh, deity and humanity in one person. But we can say that in his humanity, he did come to know this. His ears were opened, he listened. He came to understand what the Lord wanted him to do. We don't have time to explore it this morning, but I think there is definitely something about this in the preceding verse, where the servant says, He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. What the first part of verse 5 is telling us is that the servant knew all about the things we just read, about establishing judgment in the earth, about being a light to the Gentiles, about being worshipped by kings and princes. But it means he also knew about the pain and the suffering. About being despised and rejected of men. About being wounded and bruised. About being made an offering for sin. The servant knew that the Lord had a crown for him to wear. But also a cross for him to bear. When we go to the New Testament, we are left in no doubt that the servant understood what the will of the Lord was for him. On multiple occasions we witness Jesus being explicit with his disciples about this. Listen to what he said on one such occasion, Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. Jesus' suffering came as no surprise to him. He was the servant of the Lord and his ears were open. He listened to God's voice. And that brings us to the heart of our message this morning. What did the servant do? He understood what the Lord wanted him to do. He he was well aware of the path that the Lord had wanted him to walk down. So what did he do? Three statements here in our text. Number one, verse five. I was not rebellious neither turned away back. Even though he knew full well what obeying the Lord entailed for him, he didn't say, no thanks. He didn't decide to quit or run away. And he didn't try to achieve the same outcome in a different manner. I couldn't help but think of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. That was the devil trying to persuade Jesus that he could go about things a different way. That he could get the glory without the suffering. He could win the crown without the cross. And Jesus said, no, he was not rebellious, not at all. He didn't turn back. Even when he knew that the weight of God's righteous indignation against sinners was about to fall on his shoulders. I think of Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said unto the disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. The cup filled with the undiluted wrath of God was given to him to drink. To drink on behalf of sinners like you and me, and he did not pass it up. Rather, he picked it up and drank it down. All of it. I think also of the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross I was not rebellious neither turned away back and then statement number 2 verse 6 I gave my back to the smiters my cheeks to them that off the hair. pulling out the hair from someone 's beard was of course very painful for them. I can relate that from personal experience. that was a form of torture, and it was probably intended to humiliate a person. If you remember, King David did something like this to some of his enemies now he didn 't pluck the hair from off their faces rather he shaved it off he shaved off half of their beards in order to shame and embarrass them. The servant, in not being rebellious, as part of his obedience, allowed others to do this to him. Now, we have no record of this happening to Jesus, but we can easily imagine that it was part of the humiliation and the violence that was visited upon him during his trials before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. We are definitely told by the Gospel writers... He gave his back to the smiters. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26 says, Then Pilate released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The Apostle John records it this way Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. What this means is that Jesus' back was plowed up like a field by a vicious instrument of torture, the Roman flagrum. A short whip made of two or three leather thongs or ropes connected to a handle. The leather thongs were knitted with a number of small pieces of metal or bone attached at various intervals. I don't think any of us could have stood there and watched Jesus be tortured in this fashion. Uh, The brutality and the bloodiness would have been too much for us to bear I was not rebellious, says the servant, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And then, number 3, verse 6 again, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. We know this was also part of Jesus' experience. Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, they did spit on his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. The interesting thought here in Isaiah chapter 50 is that the servant stood there and took it. He didn't hide his face from it. He stood there and wore it, the spit in his face and the shame in his soul. One author sums it up this way. The reaction of the servant is amazing. For he voluntarily allowed himself to suffer this degrading abuse. In the midst of this abuse there appears to be no cries of innocence. No lamentation or weeping and no calling for God to have vengeance on his persecutors. He accepts this mistreatment and does not hide his face to avoid it or protect himself from such abuse. The language clearly represents the willful submission of an innocent servant of God to vile persecution. And this is the thought that I want us to dwell upon as we come to the table this morning. The servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, submitted himself to the will of his Father. You can't miss this in in this passage. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious. I gave my back to the smiters. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Jesus voluntarily gave himself. He gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed and that's what the bread and the cup on this table before us represent. He gave up his life and he did so for his Father's sake to magnify God so that all might marvel at his grace in the redemption of sinners for all eternity. And he gave up his life for our sake. Jesus gave his back to the smiters For me and for you. He hid not his face from shame and from spitting for us, for our sake. It was for the purpose of accomplishing our salvation. It was part of bearing the pain and the shame that was due to us. It was part of paying the penalty of our sins, bearing them in his own body and carrying them away. The Apostle Paul expresses it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room with his disciples, he said this when he broke the bread and handed it out. He said, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. The bread was a token, a symbol of his body, his body which would shortly be bruised and battered and bleeding on a cross. His body would be given for them, for their salvation. And here's the point. He was going to give it. He was going to lay it down for them. Let's remember this. As we come to his table today, let's think about Jesus and who he is to us. Amen.